Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hey 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to yet another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast, where Darlington, South Carolina is considered holy ground. With me, as always, is my former boss and co-host, Steve Wade. Steve Wade, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Rick, and how about yourself? Well, you know, at my house, we had to dig out of about... Well, well over a foot of snow. Good Lord. And you city folk down here in Charlotte. <laughs> we got about an inch, if that much, and you can't find a jug of milk or a loaf of bread anywhere around here. <laughs> With an inch of snow. All right. <laughs> well, at our house, honestly, we had, I guess, close to 16, 17, 18 inches. So Good great. We were snowed in Sunday. We didn't oh, go I anywhere. just imagine. Yeah, we didn't go anywhere. So had a little bit of time to plan for the podcast. This episode, I'm going to share the second part of my interview with Ricky Rudd. And in that interview, he talks about his 1997 Brickyard 400 win, which is probably a very special memory for me as well. And I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But also, he talks about a race that he won at Martinsville, Virginia in 1998 that is probably one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. You know, I tell you what, I was there, and uh, that was an unusually hot day. And you can just imagine how those drivers were feeling inside those hot cars with that scorching temperature and the track temperature also being very, very high. It was like racing in an oven. So let's go ahead and jump into the interview, and we will be back right after that to talk about it. You were driving for your own team when you won one of the biggest races of your career, if not the biggest, the 1997 Brickyard 400. Ricky, put that race into perspective. How big a deal was that for you in London? You know, at the time, it was it was big. Don't get me wrong. It was by far the biggest win. But, you know, the sad thing about racing is that it, things move so quickly from the win to, okay, all right, wins, that's great. And, you you know, you really try to soak up the moment. And in that situation, the way the Victor Lane ceremonials uh, was set up, it goes on a little bit longer there. So you are able to enjoy it. you got a victory parade lap they take you around there in a the convertible. A lot of things, kiss the bricks and all that type stuff. It's really neat. But all of a sudden, it gets, you know, sun starts going down, it gets quiet, it gets dark. And you look at your schedule, oh, we got to be in Daytona Beach, you know, at about 7 a.m. the next morning where our plane's waiting to come take us down there. And so you, you roll right into the next situation so quickly, you don't have a chance to really soak up and what does that really mean. But as time is going on, going on uh, it, it's by far the biggest win of my, of my career. And, and they still do some neat things. I mean, they had a get-together of every winner of the Brickyard not Brickyard 400, but also the Indy 500, all the guys that are still living today. About a year ago, they had a get-together during the winter uh, where they brought everybody in as one big, had one big evening with all the previous winners. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the Cup guys uh, were at testing somewhere. They couldn't make it, but it was a pretty neat event to see a lot of the heroes and a lot of the old guys that had won there before. So that, that race alone, it just carries a lot more weight than a lot of the other ones. That's probably one of the things I'm probably more proud of now is looking back at the car owner career not just the driver careers we had six six wins in about five or six years uh as an owner and i look back now and uh at the time i never really relished in the fact of hey i'm we're an owner and a driver i never really thought those roles were any different one another since i've retired i look back and i say you know gosh there's a lot of guys out here that good teams that you know have never won big race like the brickyard and uh, some teams put in a lot of years and never win at all as an owner so i kind of cherish the fact that we're able to win as an owner your win at Richmond in 1984 was pretty amazing, but another one that really truly 
stands out for me was 1998 at Martinsville. You were having really bad problems with heat exhaustion. Your back and your butt were burned pretty much to a crisp from just staying in the race car. What kept you in the car that day? Well, I think at that time it wasn't getting out of the car, you know, to keep that streak going. We had a consecutive win streak, I don't know, 16 years in a mm-hmm. row, somewhere in there. And we hadn't won that season. It was getting down, getting kind of iffy if we were going to be able to win. It was fairly late in the season. That probably carried some extra weight staying in the car because with that particular day, we had a car that was that was very capable of winning. It never hardly ran out of the top five the whole time that day. And I think knowing that those opportunities were getting fewer and far between. How aware were you of what was going on those last few laps? Because when you got out of the car, I was truly concerned for your health because evidently you, you were really really struggling yeah it, it was it was very tough i mean a lot of guys over the years have had trouble with their cooling equipment you know not working no power steering you know and they drive on and they and they go on you know that particular day what had happened is a lot of the things that came along later the the cool helmet box and things of that nature didn't exist in so we uh, each team had their own version of what they thought could aid the driver in our particular deal we had a situation work that worked actually it worked very well for about four or five years and it consisted of a lot of dry ice special built seat there was a lot of things that were built around this thing but that particular day when we i don't know if it kicked a breaker or what happened to it when we turned it on to start the race it didn't work and normally so hey you know you can live at short track you can live with that without that but what had happened is because this thing had worked flawlessly for so many years all the things that we used to put in the floor for insulation and the seat for insulation to help protect the driver, we didn't need any of that because our seat was also air-conditioned at the time. We had a double-layer panels, and it, it worked. But when it didn't work, it was unbelievably hot. I mean, the metal oh. actually was it, was it was blistering your skin. So, you know, as, as time went on and the car, the race was coming down to two or three guys, and, then, you know, our competition, our car seemed to get a little better. They got a little worse. It was going to be awful hard to get out of that car. But I did know that at the end, I can. I came back to him and said, "Guys, I'm I'm listening. I hear everything you say, but I can't. I'm saving energy. I can't talk. Yeah. I knew that when, if we were able to win it, that I really contemplated not even going down to the uh, the Victory Lane area, but driving straight to the Enfield Hospital and getting out. I mean, I knew I was I was hurt. How long did it take you to recuperate from that? Well, the blisters and stuff probably took a couple of weeks, but probably maybe three to four days before you didn't feel like you've been that you've been totally beat up or run over by a truck. Probably <laughs> took about four days for yeah. that to go away. That was 1998, and the following year, 1999, uh, you were shut out of Victory Lane for the first time in 16 years. You finished 31st in points, and at the end of the year, you opted to shut the team down. Mm-hmm. How hard a decision was that for you? It was it was tough. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was very tough, but, but had to separate the difference between you know, letting your emotions make a business, bad business decision. The business decision was pretty clear to me at the time. Uh, we got into it, and my wife and I put a lot of um, a lot of sleepless nights into it. You fund it with a lot of your personal um, monies that you've saved, and you, you know we, everything worked good. We came through all that, and you know we didn't we didn't take a financial beating owning the team. Um, but if we had continued on, it was going to get real nasty. And the problem, I guess, that I, I should have listened to my wife Linda after we won the brickyard that year. We probably should have shut it down. We were underfunded. Uh, we couldn't get the money to do the things we needed. We couldn't get the money to hire the help. Uh, the technical uh, engineering side of NASCAR was changing dramatically at that time. And, you know, we had all the things we knew what we needed to do. We had a scale model wind tunnel program. We had all these things we needed to get done. But, hey, it takes, you know, it's going to take 3 or $4 million to make this happen. And the teams around us, they never they never hiccup. They found the money, and we did not. And uh, 
we gave it a deadline. If we can't find the money by a certain time, then we're going to shut it down. I don't want to go out there and be non-competitive. I'd rather go and run for a team that has to fund it. Uh, but emotionally, you were attached to your team that you had built. But um, it wasn't hard from a business standpoint to see what you had to do. Now, you went to Robert Yates Racing for the beginning of the 2000 season. In 2001, you won a couple of races. You won another race in 2002. After going a couple of years without a win, how big was that for you to win those races? Was it a deal where you got the affirmation that, yeah, I can still race? Well, I mean, as a driver, you know, you're – you, that's something that goes on, at least it did with me constantly. You know, am I good enough to get this done? Am I going to win again? You know, you're sort of always a little bit doubting your, you know, your yourself or doubting self-confidence. Uh, and and maybe that was just me personally, but, it, you know, you sort of only in this sport as good as your last win. And if that win came a couple of years earlier, well, then, you know, all of a sudden your stock is not valued like it once was. you got to win regularly. And uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, as time has gone on, the sport's gotten more competitive. You got, you know, I wouldn't say you got better drivers, but you got more drivers with good equipment that can get the can get the job done. So it's difficult to win. But uh, but to get those wins after a little lull, it it was very rewarding. You know, all of a sudden you you know you just kind of get a big sigh on your you know relief, feeling like someone's taking a load of bricks off your back and. Uh, it makes it fun again. I mean, racing is not fun unless you're doing well, and it's got a lot of tough moments in it, and the, the winds come, and they just kind of would reward you at a certain time when you needed a left lifting. You stepped out of the car for the 2006 season, but then you came back in 2007. What went into those decisions? Well, I, I didn't really know. I never told anyone. I never said the, used the word retire when I stepped out in 06. I didn't know if I if – I had no idea what I wanted to do as far as did I want to retire or not. I'm, I'm starting to have thoughts. You know, I'm getting older. I'm, you know, it's maybe time to step back. You know, my, my son was growing up. I wasn't able to see him grow up like I wanted to. So a lot of things were weighing in on me. I had a back operation. I'm starting to think, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm just wore out. I need to take – you know, I, maybe I need to – I don't know the answer to this question, but maybe I need to take a little time off, and maybe that decision will become a little easier for me. I took time off, and uh, and then the Joe Gibbs operation, Tony Stewart's bunch, uh, I guess Tony got hurt, and I wanted to know if I would fill in for him at Dover. And it, it went from, man, this is great. We qualify in the top ten, and, and uh, it went from being that way till we started the race. And we weren't having too good a, a race, but then the guy started getting the car turned around. At the end, we had a top-five car, but then we got a pit road speeding ticket, and and just the frustration, it went from a high to a low that day. And I just said, you know, I, just, I don't think I don't think I really want to. I don't really know if I want to do this. I don't know. I don't know if I want to compete with the highs and the lows like we've got to do here. And and all drivers do that every day. At the end of that season, I, I wasn't sure. And then uh, and then I guess Yates called. I'm trying to think. As in 06, 07, I guess Robert called and uh, wondered if I'd come come back and run the 88 car. I had to do a lot of thinking about that, soul searching, and disappointed that I probably came back. You know, Robert's team at that time, he, he was rebuilding. Dale Jarrett had just left, and he was trying to get it rebuilt and just never materialized. We didn't have the engineering support when the season started. You know, sort of we were doomed before the year ever started, really. You did come back in 2007, but you got hurt late in the year at California, separated your shoulder pretty bad. After driving at Richmond with your eyes taped open, after winning at Martinsville, all but passed out in the car, it must have been a heck of a shoulder injury to keep you out of the car. It was one of those deals. It was a nagging. You know, I, if, I could have bandaged it up and started the race. I could have started every race. But I, I would have had to have gotten out for two or three weeks anyway 
uh, to let someone else drive. And at that time, you know, the team wasn't doing very well, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, it might be maybe they need another fresh blood in here behind the wheel, see, you know, see if maybe it sparks something. And Kenny Wallace stepped in, I think, most of the time for me. And, you know, Kenny did a great job, but, it, you know, it just wasn't there. At that time, the team just didn't didn't have it going. It needed it needed something. Made a driver switch you know, with me being out of the seat. Didn't really come alive. I don't think Robert really knew what to do to get it turned around. I mean, I think he, the whole plan was when I came to work for him, they, we expected to have Delara Engineering, the IndyCar builders, be doing all the engineering for us. That deal fell through probably about December of the preceding year before we mm, started the season. Yeah. So, I mean, we were behind the eight ball already, but we had no engineering support. And I really, I really think that's what doomed the team uh, the year that I, was, that I came back. It was sort of doomed before we got started. You stepped out of the car or good after 2007 and that i know of you've not been in a car since i haven't been to a i haven't been to a racetrack since uh, since i stepped out which would have been miami at the end of uh have you not uh I, I, I say that i've never been i went to andy hillenberg's track in rockingham when andy had his uh <laughs> first race i did that to to uh be one of the grand marshals for yeah. help him going but uh, i've been over to charlotte motor speedway maybe once to do a go-kart play day um, wow but, but that's it You've not been back to a track. Mm-mm. Is that something where I don't want to say that you're afraid to go back because you'll miss it, or is it something that you just don't feel like doing anymore? Well, I, I really compare it to an alcoholic and a drink of liquor. <laughs> uh, really, I, you know, unless you distance yourself almost totally, it's hard to step away. Yeah. And that's at least, and it's probably different for everybody. But that's what kind of I've had to, to do at least for two or three years. And after going on the third year. It was a nice career. I look back and I said, man, it was great. You know, a few things I'd like to have done better. I made some mistakes along the way, made some bad decisions along the way. But all in all, it is what it is. It's over and it's done and uh, done that. And don't need to do it again. Save it for the young guys. You know, Let them go out there and fight it. But uh, I would like to like for it to have ended on a better note. I kind of like what yeah. Mark Martin. I'd love to have gone out on a season like Mark had last year. But I would like to have gone out that way instead of going out, you know, with, you know, an injury and, and skipping, you know, seven, eight races or so last year, the last year of my career. How much of you not going back to the track is actually your opinion? And how much is it Linda saying, if you go back, you're a dead man? <laughs> no, no, I think, I, think I, I think it's out of my system. I, yeah. I really do. Um, uh, it, it, like I say, we've gotten to know a lot of people around us uh, that we didn't used to know before. But, it, you know, it's in your life. It's your whole life. I mean, it's not something you can really easily separate. I mean, I still, I'll still watch every now and then. I don't sit down and watch a whole race, but I might uh, TiVo it or, you know, tape it or whatever and fast forward it and see the highlights. But, uh, I mean, there's days there's a race going on. I say, oh, it's today's Sunday. There's a race going on. I wonder what's going on. Just, it seemed like it was just a, you know, just a distant memory now. What is your honest opinion of the sport today? You don't have to get a car through tech anymore, so let us have it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm 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 a little confused on what's going on with the sport. I think, again, my opinion doesn't really mean a lot because I'm not really plugged into the day to day. I mean, it definitely seems like there's a tremendous amount of talent from the driver's side out there. Uh, you know, NASCAR basically dictates which way they want to steer the sport, and you know. I'm not so sure that a step wasn't made many years ago to try to let's really grow this sport. Let's go after the youth market. Let's go after the Hispanic. Let's go after this. Let's go after that. And I'm afraid when they did that, they sort of pissed off a bunch of the old reliable fans. And and these guys, they don't seem to forget. Um, and I'm not so sure that's not 
what they're fighting right now because the some of the race and some of it not all of it but some of it it's good racing you know it's uh, some exciting racing i know the drivers are up on the wheel i can say that they they really drive every lap very hard you know is it a good race exciting to watch you know i don't know i've always looked at it from a different perspective but i think maybe nascar has seen that maybe they did some mistakes trying to grow the sport and maybe they're trying to you know they're trying harder than ever to to get that crowd back and, and maybe they're doing a good job getting it back but Sure looks like a lot of empty seats in the stands. Being one of the road course kings and stock car racing's Iron Man, what are your thoughts on someday making it into the NASCAR Hall of Fame? You know, I don't I don't really know. Um, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see on that. Um, you know, right now, it's going to be many, many, many years down the road before I feel like I should even be considered for that, uh, if we get considered. Um, right now, there's a lot of greats in the sport, and I think that's – a little bit of the issues that they're having to deal with now is there's only about four or five guys go in each year and they're trying to get caught up because of the history of the sport. So many guys in the, in the past that deserve to be there. And you've got this, you know, you've got a, uh, you've got a narrow opening and you've got this big wedge trying to get through that hole to get those four or five in there. So uh, I think in time, uh, maybe, you know, many, many years down the road, I don't know if I'll see it during my lifetime. It'd be nice to maybe be considered when they get to that, that point. For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. Steve, the first race that I wanted to bring up that Ricky mentioned was the 1997 Brickyard 400. At that time, the shine was still on that race. Just the awe and respect and reverence that people had for that race. For anybody to win that race was a really big deal. And it remains a really big deal just because of the history of the place. Ricky had started his own team. Right. And he won that race driving his own car. Yes, that's true. That's true. And he also won it with a uh, good piece of strategy and a certain amount of luck. Late in the race, guys like Mark Martin and Dale Jarrett and Jeff Gordon were leading the race, but everybody had to make at least one last pit stop. Now, before those pit stops started, Robbie Gordon got into a spin, and Jeff Burton, who was also among the leaders, ran over debris and had to come in under green. Well, he came in under green and came back out ahead of the other guys, but... Still, he got run down by Ricky Rudd and a couple other guys who did not pit. They stayed out and took that late race gamble. And Ricky did manage to move into the lead. And he led the last 49 laps of that race without making a pit stop. He got, that, was a, that was his strategy. 49 laps. Well, yes, indeed. You do the math. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> if but, you say so. Oh, he won the race. And, and I have to say, in my opinion, that's probably the greatest victory of his career, especially the fact that he did it with his own team, which was not a common thing in those days for drivers who turned owners to win with their own teams. In fact, most of them didn't. Well, at that time, there was a trend 
yeah. for drivers to own their own teams. I think it got started with Alan Quickie's success in 1992 winning the championship, but Darrell Waltrip had started his own team in 91. He had left Hendrick Motorsports. He drove for himself, and after Alan won the championship, and obviously everything happened the, the next year, Jeff Bodine wound up buying Alan's team, so he was an owner-driver. Right. Who else? Well, it preceded Alan when Buddy Baker oh, yeah, came, yeah, came as yeah, own team yeah. owner at, in mid-'80s. And uh, that was the trend. I think the reason they did it was they no longer had to race for a percentage of the money. And, in fact, if they had a sponsorship, they could get it all. That was a, the theory. But it yeah. always worked that way. <laughs> that was the theory. Yeah, you were racing for 100% of the purse and sponsorship package, but right. you well, and I both know. You had to meet the expenses, too. And yeah. expenses in, in race ownership are tremendous. You can't do it without a sponsor. I no. Mean, there's no question no. about that. Buddy Baker gave me the best quote on owning his own team. He said he came into the shop one day, and they needed a particular part or something. And uh, Buddy said, well, how much? And one of his crewmen said, well, 20 He said, all right, go get it. Found out that 20 was not $20. It was $20,000. And Buddy, Hello. he said, my eyes opened up after that. <laughs> and so eventually he did not own his own team. And all the others passed from doing it as well because the trend came to an end. Most of the guys did retire. After they owned their own team, most of the guys had gone ahead and retired because there was no sense in in trying to continue with somebody else, and they were older, let's admit it. And it wasn't always successful. I mean, Daryl went straight backwards, in my opinion, owning his own team. Well, he did have some success early Early, in that run. But later on, I don't mean to be putting him down for this, but he just became something of a joke. And the saying around the garage area was that Daryl was the only guy passing people backwards. (laughs) But uh, Daryl, this is Steve talking. I, this is not Rick talking. Okay. <laughs> I just saying what we're saying. <laughs> and Ricky even had to auction off his stuff when yeah. he ended the team. So the, that trend pretty much came to halt after Ricky, and for good reason. Well, you and I both have heard the old saying in racing that the best way to make a small fortune in racing. Is to start out with a big one. Is to start out with a really big one. (laughs) And so, you know, I think people like Jeff Bodine and Ricky Rudd and Darrell Waltrip certainly came to a point where they just couldn't keep going the way that they had. No, that's that's the way it worked for nearly all of them. They reached a point where the success, or let's call it non-success. Let's back up a little bit. Ricky Rudd is very, very good as a team owner to win. I mean, he won a huge race at Brickyard. He won a couple other races, racing for himself. But even at that, even at that, without the necessary sponsorship money, which eventually dries up, you can't function. You can't do it. And everything has to come to an end. We don't see that much. I don't think we see it at all anymore for those reasons. It's just too much of a financial risk. Steve, a personal note that I wanted to add about the Brickyard 400 win was at Christmas of 1996, Ricky went with Morgan Shepard on his annual Christmas trip. And I've been on that for years and years and years. We spent that entire day in Morgan's motor coach, just chatting with Ricky and getting to know him a little bit. And my wife went on the tour that year. And in August of 1997, she was appointed as a district court judge in the state of North Carolina. Uh That same year, Ricky won the Brickyard 400 at Indy. 
And after the race, I was in the garage trying to track down an interview or something. And Ricky came by. He was in the back seat of a car. And he actually stopped the car and rolled down his window. And he said, I saw something in Winston Cup scene about your wife being appointed as a judge. Is that right? And I said, yeah, it's a pretty cool deal. And he said, you know, I've never ridden in a motor coach with a judge before. and i said well you know she's never ridden in a motor coach with a brickyard 400 winner before so (laughs) you know for him to stop at such an important moment in his life in his career right and to talk about somebody else's accomplishment was a pretty cool deal that's a perfect example of what i've tried to say about him if you were his friend you were his friend no doubt about it the Brickyard 400 was not the only race that Ricky Rudd won driving his own equipment, and he discussed one of the other ones at Martinsville. And Steve, when, not if, when Ricky Rudd makes the NASCAR Hall of Fame, I think that his win at Richmond in 1984 after he'd had the crash in the Bush clash right. and his win at Martinsville in September of 1998 – He'll get into the Hall of Fame doing no small part to those two wins in particular. Well, you're exactly right. And this proves something that we've talked about before, about how tough Ricky is. You know, he raced and won at Richmond after those severe injuries in the Bush Clash in Daytona. Then he came 1998 in Martinsville. It was hot. I'm oh, talking hot. Yeah, yeah. September hot. <laughs> and You can imagine what the track temperature was. You can imagine what the air temperature was. And you can just imagine what those drivers are going to go through sitting in those hot cars lap after lap after lap at Martinsville where you don't get the benefit of air rushing into your car due to the speed. It's not that way at Martinsville. You are just cooking. And in that race, sure enough, several drivers couldn't last. I mean, relief drivers were abundant in that particular race. Ricky, though, hung hung in there. And because he, he was running well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was the difference. You know, you get a relief driver at Martinsville, your oh, chance yeah. of winning yeah, you're over. Yeah. 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 So so the guys is the one to win a race, not all of them can last. But Ricky lasted. That's how tough he was. And I'm telling you, he crossed that finish line at just the right time because I don't think he could have gone on much further as it was. They had to lay him down in Victory Lane and come to his assistance with wet, cold rags and oxygen. Yeah. And uh, that was it. You want to see a man who is suffering, That there's a photograph of, of yeah. Ricky. Yeah, you know. Well, the cover of the next week's Winston right. Cup scene where he's just laying in somebody's arms with his head on his shoulder, that is a look of true pain and right. agony. And in this case, it was not the agony of defeat. It was the agony of victory. All right, exactly. And he did win the race and stuck in there long enough to do it. That's a testament to how strong Ricky really was uh, physically. And uh, and mentally. Absolutely. And mentally. Well, I think in that race, weren't they trying to pour water down his back and it wound up basically broiling yes. his backside? Yes. They have today all kinds of devices to keep a driver cool. Back in those days, uh, they had those devices, but they didn't always work. There was the cool suit, you know, that ran cold water through the suit and, uh, you know, through the body. If that didn't work, you were sitting in a hot tub. Oh, yeah. So uh, that wasn't exactly the most popular gizmo for drivers to use but uh, yeah they dumped they, the water was dumped on ricky i remember that if it didn't evaporate it turned hot oh 
And I'm sitting here just talking about this and just, oh, I, I can't even imagine. It's cannot just, even imagine. No, it's just, I can't either. I wouldn't even dream of doing anything remotely like that. But Ricky Rudd is Ricky Rudd. Steve, where does he rank in terms of chances to get into the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Oh, I think he ranks very high. Yeah. Uh, for the reasons that we've talked about all, already. There's one other thing, too. Not only did he win with his own team, he had the record for most consecutive seasons with at least one victory. Yeah. He yeah, won he a race. Yeah. He won at least one race in 15 years straight. That, coupled with his significant victories, meaning the Brickyard, of course, uh, puts him high on the list of candidates for the Hall of Fame. I'm like you. I think he will make the NASCAR Hall of Fame. It's just a matter of time. Steve, a couple of weeks ago, I tweeted out asking anybody if they had any questions that you and I might be able to answer. And I got a kick out of some of the things that people came up with. And last week, we talked about J.D. Stacy and got a lot of comments about that discussion. But this week, this week, at Drunk Brian F. wants to know. repeat that. <laughs> Man, I told you we were just going to skip over that. We weren't going to mention the irony of that name. All right. <laughs> Come on, man. You're trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> Send your comments and questions to Steve Wade at. <laughs> no. Okay. At Drunk Brian F. And we're just going to leave it at that. Okay. But Drunk Brian F. wanted to know, I know it was before your time at scene, but I'd love to hear Steve Wade discuss any memories he has of Marty Robbins at the racetrack. Oh, how about that? Now, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh-huh. Music City. Uh-huh. And Marty Robbins is, he's like a, a small G God right. in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. And he was also a race car driver. Yes, he was. He did it for fun. I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that. When I, except one day, I guess it was the late 70s, I arrived at Talladega and there was this gaudy purple and yellow <laughs> Dodge. I don't know who came up with that paint scheme. <laughs> oh. Sitting there and it had Marty Robbins written on the quarter panel. I said, What the heck? Am I in El Paso? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I thought maybe Marty Robbins was sponsoring a car. But, you know, after some investigation, no, he was actually driving and going to make the Talladega race and yeah. race at Talladega. Now, I found out later on that he did this more as a hobby to have fun and enjoyed it. He enjoyed the racing. He enjoyed the camaraderie. He didn't go too many places except Talladega, although in the course of his 35 career races, he did show up at Rockingham, Darlington, and Michigan, and he made the Daytona 500 a couple of times. So that was interesting, but I never really had a chance to talk to him in detail about why he raced except to obviously know that he did it just to, uh, for fun and to have a hobby. Never was particularly good on the track, and nobody expected him to be. But there was one time when Marty Robbins lit up the <laughs> yeah. track. Yeah, 
<laughs> it turned out to be in the time of the carburetor plates. Now, those are the devices used to slow the cars down at places like Daytona and Talladega. They're supposed to slow the cars well, down. Well, <laughs> they were in their infancy, you know. Certain drivers and teams took certain measures to make sure they got around the carburetor plate. Guys would take wax and put that wax and make it over the holes that were in the carburetor plate. And, of course, you know what happens when wax meets heat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it goes melts, away. It goes away, yeah. and all of a sudden, boom, these guys are flying. Well, Marty Robbins, of all people, picked up some kind of device like that. I don't know where he got it. I don't know who gave it to him. I don't know what the situation was that it was in there. However, we're watching Marty Robbins on the track at Talladega, and all of a sudden, he's passing guys. One, two, three, four, moving right up the pack like there is no tomorrow. And, of course, everybody's eyebrows went up. What in the world had gotten in to Marty Robbins? Well, it was found out, sure enough, he had that gizmo, whatever you want to call it, wax, gizmo. We never did know exactly what it was, but Marty was able to get around the carburetor plate and pick up that much speed. Now, he said he didn't know where it came from. Sure, yeah, Marty. Everybody, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Everybody sure. sort of said, yeah, right, as they always do. But I think Marty did it. My own theory is that Marty did it to see what it was like to pass somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and he yeah. said, I'd go by guys, and they'd look over and see me go by them, and they'd have this wow look on their face. What in the world is going on? Here? Yeah, yeah. You know, he said, it felt good to do that. I don't think Marty had any intention of winning the race whatsoever, but I think he had a lot of fun finding out what it was like. To pass people. Now, how does somebody go to Talladega for fun? Because if I'm going to have fun at a racetrack, and I'm not that experienced, I don't know that Talladega is the place that I'm going to go, because that's a big boy track. There is one theory that was advanced about Talladega. It's probably one of the reasons that Marty Robbins ran there. I was told by more than one driver that he said to me, and this is a direct quote, if we ever are going to put you, me, you guys in these cars and put you on a track and let you drive them, Talladega's where you're going. And I thought, you must be out of your mind. I said, no, here's the reasoning. At Talladega, there is no finesse. You mash the gas to the floor and aim the car. That's it. That's all you have to do. Hands down, the most memorable thing that I've ever done in my career, and I've got to do a lot of cool stuff, mm-hmm. and you have too. Yeah. I got to do the Del Jarrett Racing Adventure at Talladega. Uh-huh. Done it twice. The first time that I did it, I got to do a 20-lap run, and from the fourth lap on, my foot was on the floorboard all the way around the racetrack. Once I put my foot on the floorboard, my lap speeds were between 163 and 165 miles an hour. At the end of the backstretch, my best speed was just short of 178 miles an hour. Wow. And (laughs) when I got out of the car, I could barely stand up for my knees shaking. (laughs) I have never felt that kind of just absolute adrenaline rush. It was honestly like driving on the interstate. Yep. I also did a driving school at Bristol. Uh Oh. I felt the sensation of speed at Bristol 10 times more than I did at Talladega. Right. In my opinion, anybody who covers this sport needs to do exactly what you just said. They need to strap into a car at Talladega solely to get that respect for what those competitors go through. 
Right. That probably matches very nicely to what I've been told about letting us amateurs drive a race car, that at Talladega, uh, you mash the gas and you go. And yeah. they said the experience was like you said. It's like being on the interstate. However, let's not forget one thing. There is a tremendous skill needed to compete at Talladega and Daytona successfully managing the draft. There yeah. have been so many yeah. rule changes over the yeah. years. You don't know what to do about managing the draft. There's always something different. The days of the of the uh, last lap slingshot pass, they were really plentiful in the older days. They're not around anymore because the rules have changed so much. But the most successful drivers at those tracks know how to manage the draft. That's the tricky part of racing at Talladega. And the scary thing is, is just how quickly things can happen because I remember very, very distinctly being between turns three and four and yeah, I passed a car. And (laughs) so I looked to my right just for an instant at the car as I was passing it and I got past it and all of a sudden I was a lane higher. Right. You know, just because my concentration had been broken for just that split second. And yeah, if if it had been in a race with forty two other guys, uh, yeah, you, you talk about just the big one. Yeah. the problem that yeah. goes on at Talladega. Yeah. Those cars are and Daytona. Those cars are so close together in that draft. All it takes is one small mistake for all havoc to erupt. All it takes is one small mistake for all heck to break loose out on the track. And that's where Marty Robbins goes on his day off, on his weekend off from touring. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't know about that. But <laughs> he didn't run at Nashville that much in the Cup Series. That was only his first race yeah, back, back in, in six, 1966, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, I would assume that <laughs> – I would assume that when he had a weekend off, he just wanted to get the heck out of Dodge. In a Dodge. Yeah, yeah. So, at Drunk Brian F., I hope that answers your question. Also, Steve, we had an email that I wanted to share with our listeners, and it's going to kind of lay out what we have in mind for the scene vault. I'll just go ahead and read the email. It says, my name is Brian Richards, and I loved reading Winston Cup scene in the 1990s. My copy of the February 19th, 1998 issue, when my hero, Dale Earnhardt, finally won the Daytona 500, ranks among my most cherished possessions. I was thrilled to find the Scene Vault website. I look forward to viewing the completed website with full copies of all issues available for viewing. I'm writing to inquire when this website might be completed and ready for viewing. You and me both, brother. (laughs) Will access be free of charge or available by paid subscription? If the latter, I would love to purchase a subscription as a Christmas gift. How and where may I purchase a subscription if this option is available? Best regards, Brian Richards, Dobbs Ferry, New York. Wow. He opened the door, buddy. (laughs) He sure did. Yeah, let's just go ahead and open that Pandora's box. So... As most of you who listen to this podcast know and keep up with the Twitter feed, I collected every single issue of Grand National Scene, Winston Cup Scene, NASCAR Scene in its 32-year run. It's almost 2,000 issues. And you and I, Steve, have been working with American City Business Journals to 
get permission to do an online archive in the Scene Vault website. To be honest with you, I understand some of the legalities and some of the legal hurdles that we obviously have to clear to make this happen, but it's a process that has to be seen all the way through to completion because this 32-year archive of NASCAR history has to be preserved. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And you did mention legalities and things that the Scene Vault has to get around. No doubt they're out there, uh, but... I've seen you on this project, Rick, for a long time now, and you have really devoted a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of hard work to it. Just call me Don Quixote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you're more than that. I think you're going to get the job done. I think it's going to be uh, something that will exist and be a boon to race fans everywhere, even those who didn't read scene. You're going to find out things that you never knew existed over 32 years of coverage by the publication and its long-standing, well-known staff of writers and photographers. Perhaps the biggest hurdle that Scene Vault is going to have to overcome is copyright laws. Uh, They are somewhat complicated. I'll go on record as saying, most of the copyright issues foreseen do not exist because of the statute of limitations. However, to complete the project the way that you want it, Rick, you're going to have to get around somehow those copyright issues. The biggest concerns that ACBJ have mentioned is a freelance writer or photographer seeing a story or photograph in the paper and then claiming that they never got paid for it. Yeah, I've actually had several photographers send me messages on Facebook and say, can we sign a disclaimer in order to make this happen? I can't even begin to say how much I appreciate that because this is preserving your work, it's preserving my work, it's preserving Deb Williams's work, Phil Cavelli, Chad Fletcher, Tim Wilcox, Jim Fluharty, Elmer Kappel. All the photographers, you know, Cindy Karam, who's now Cindy Elliott, Bill's wife. In my opinion, it would be a way to honor their work and preserve their work. Because right now, it's not doing anybody any good. Yeah. Laying on my shelf collecting dust. So, you know, that's one thing. And, you know, I'll just go ahead and say the NASCAR logo is another issue. But when I talk to a couple of people at NASCAR, that's the same reservation that they had was somebody coming out of the woodworks and claiming that they never got paid and suing, blah, blah, blah. Do I ever see that happening? No. But you and I both know that it would only take one, and I've got probably a couple of people in mind who would (laughs) (laughs) rock the boat. (laughs) But this is too important to let fall by the wayside. I agree. And what you have just said shows the listeners how complicated this can be. It involves corporations, it involves the sanctioning body itself, and it involves individuals. Now, I just go on the record speaking my part. I don't think ACBJ has a thing to worry about. I'm pretty sure that NASCAR shouldn't be concerned about this at all. Based on my assumptions, and they are assumptions, I think you should go right ahead and do everything you possibly can to get the scene vault out there. The issue with NASCAR is simply this. At some point in 1996, midway through 1996, the NASCAR logo went on the masthead, and we officially became NASCAR Winston Cup scene. 
And then at the beginning of the 2004 season, when Winston's sponsorship ended, it became simply NASCAR scene. Now, that being said, NASCAR never had any editorial control. No. Never paid any bills. No. Never did anything like that. Now, was there a story or two where they we kind of went back and forth on pretty hard? Yeah. I can name at least one or two. But ultimately, that's a situation that NASCAR would have had with anybody, not just us. Now, it's also worth noting that I don't think ACBJ would have brokered a deal with NASCAR if NASCAR had said, we want to have some editorial influence. They would have never done it. Yeah. Never have done it. Yeah. And I can tell you that if my experience in seeing all those years, NASCAR never did enforce editorial control at all. It may have asked a favor here and there. <laughs> and I'm not saying they even got that favor. Yeah. yeah. So that was the relationship we had with NASCAR. And one other thing that I'm going to say, bluntly, about NASCAR and being a part of Scene Vault and having some concerns about it, I want to remind everybody that we paid NASCAR for the use of that logo. And rather well, I might add. Absolutely. So in my mind, I'm no lawyer, but in my mind, once you pay for something through the course of its existence, I don't think you owe that entity anything more. The bottom line for me is this, and I'll tell you to your face. If your work at Winston Cup scene is worthy of being honored with the Squire Hall Award for NASCAR Media Excellence. I believe that work is worthy of being preserved. That's it. That's that. That's the ball game. Well, thank you, Rick. Thank you very much. Yeah. If Deb Williams can win the Catlin Award and Mike Ambry and Mark Ashenfelter can win the Catlin Award, the most prestigious award there is for single stories out there, yeah, I believe that that work should be preserved. So that's why I'm going after this with – everything that I am. So anyway, we'll just say that. Also, if any of you have any other questions or comments, give us a tweet at the scene vault or email us scene vault at yahoo.com. And you never know, we might tackle it here on the podcast. Well, Steve, that about does it for this episode of the podcast. And I got to be honest with you, I didn't have much trouble finding this place this time. <laughs> last last time, I had to call you two or three times before I ever found the place. <laughs> Thank goodness for GPS. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listeners, as always, on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast On PayPal, paypal.me slash Podcast And give us a review on iTunes. We would certainly appreciate it. Steve. Thank you, man. Hey, thank you, Rick. Once again, it's been a pleasure and a lot of fun.